purposes of civil liability, the torturer has become, like the pirate and slave trader before him, an enemy of all mankind. But we've also seen uh, challenges as uh, two food crises, the biggest financial and economic crisis since the 1930s, and the WTO has remained solid in the midst of this tempest. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Alien Tort Statute should not afford a cause of action to address the extraterritorial conduct of a foreign corporation. 751 Europeans have been elected to directly represent citizens from 28 different nations in all their diversities, with all their differences, with all their different outlooks on lives. But you all come together here. Hello, and welcome to Noma's Phone, a podcast series about global legal issues produced by students at Tilburg Law School. In December 2015, a 10-year-old Muslim boy from the English town of Accrington made a spelling mistake during an English lesson at his primary school. The boy had mistakenly written that he lived in a terrorist house, rather than a terrorist house. Instead of realizing it was a mistake, his teachers reported the boy to the authorities in accordance with the 2015 Counterterrorism and Security Act. Since July 2015, teachers have been legally obliged to report any suspected extremist behavior to police. The guidelines were set out in the Counterterrorism and Security Act, which codified a requirement that schools demonstrate that they are protecting pupils from being drawn into terrorism by having, quote, robust safeguarding policies in place to identify children at risk and intervening as appropriate. Teachers now are explicitly required to report any child protection concerns through the necessary channels, and in this particular case, police interviewed the boy and his parents, along with carrying out an examination of the family's laptop. But how did we get to this point? To understand how we got here, we have to go back to the aftermath of the September 11th attacks in 2001. The UK Parliament has passed a series of successive acts aimed at addressing terrorism as part of the broader political reality of the global war on terrorism, and specifically following the September 11th attacks and the London bombings in July of 2005. Mr Speaker, let me turn to how we address the terrorist threat at home. We have already taken a wide range of measures, including stopping suspects from travelling to the region by seizing passports, barring foreign nationals from re-entering the United Kingdom, legislating so that we can prosecute people for all terrorist activity, even where that activity takes place overseas, and bringing forward emergency legislation, for instance, to safeguard our use of communications data. We've also stepped up our operational response with a five-fold increase in Syria-related arrests, the removal of 28,000 pieces of extremist material from the internet this year alone, including 46 ISIL-related videos. Beginning in the 1970s, an independent reviewer of terrorism legislation has served to review the operation of the UK's principal anti-terrorism laws, reporting to the Home Secretary and to Parliament on the government's use of its statutory powers in this area. 
To learn more about this unique position and discuss the development of the UK's anti-terrorism legislation, we travelled to London to meet with Mr. David Anderson, QC, who served as the UK's independent reviewer of terrorism legislation from 2011 to 2017. Mr. Anderson is a legal expert in the areas relating to terrorism, surveillance, and extremism, and his independent review reports, A Question of Trust in 2015 and Bulk Powers Review in 2016, have been described as the blueprints for the Investigatory Powers Act passed by the UK Parliament in 2016, which expanded the electronic surveillance powers of the UK intelligence and police services. We asked Mr. Anderson about his experience as the independent reviewer and what the role of an independent reviewer of terrorism legislation entails. I'm David Anderson. I was independent reviewer of terrorism law in the UK from 2011 to 2017. It's a really unusual job. They take somebody more or less off the street, an independent lawyer in private practice. They get them to read all the secrets and they ask them to report regularly to the government but also to Parliament on how the terrorism laws are being operated. Are they being operated well? Um, are we lacking laws that we need? Are the police applying our laws too strictly? Um, how do communities feel about it? Um, and it gives the reviewer uh, a huge insight into things that you would normally only see if you were part of the secret state. And I saw myself really as a representative of everybody else in the country who can't know what I know about what is really going on, um, but who have their own civil rights that need to be defended and who need to have somebody inside that secret state um, looking out for them. Of course, a lot of my recommendations were in a civil rights direction. But also, if I saw a respect in which I didn't think the population was being kept sufficiently safe, then I would say that as well. The role of the independent reviewer is highly unique within Europe. The independent reviewer's role is to inform the public and political debate on the operation of anti-terrorism law in the United Kingdom. This is done by issuing regular reports for the Home Secretary or Treasury, which are then laid before Parliament, becoming part of the public record and terrorism policy discussions. The position itself is highly unique. It is completely independent from the government, yet it still permits a high degree of access to sensitive national security information and ministerial correspondence. Through the governmental scrutiny involved in this role and his expertise, the reports and recommendations of Mr. Anderson have been highly valued and influential in shaping terrorism policy and legislation. When I started looking at investigatory powers, the public debate in this country was completely polarized. And we all know transparency is a good thing. But I only really learned that when I was doing this job. Because as soon as the government produced a draft bill modelled on my report, a thousand pages of explanatory material, hey guys, we do this, we also do that, we have the power to do the other. I'm sorry we never told you about any of this before, but we're telling you now. Everyone just stopped for a couple of days. They read it. And then when they started up again, they still didn't agree but they had learned to disagree in a productive way. I think the job works well because to the extent that you criticise the government, people listen, there is a lot of media, and usually things happen as a result. Either the government will act or a parliamentary committee will become interested in what I've said and support what I've said, or sometimes the judges 
will pick up something I've said or findings that I've made and use them in their judgments. But it can be good for the government too, because when I say that the government is doing something okay, then that gives their policy a sort of credibility that it doesn't have if you've just got a government minister or a civil servant saying that it's going okay. So I think it is quite useful to them that when I look, for example, at powers that might be misunderstood by some members of the community, I can actually say it's not as bad as you think. Uh, it's not perfect, but you're wrong if you think that it's racist, for example, in the way that it's being used, because I've looked at the figures, I've asked the questions, I've satisfied myself. So I think if the job is skillfully done, then you succeed in walking the tightrope and retaining the trust of both sides. If, you, if I had ever lost the trust of either side, I would have resigned the following day because the job loses its value if um, that is the case. Over the last 17 years, the UK Parliament has passed a series of acts related to terrorism. The timings of UK terrorism legislation correlate to domestic terrorist attacks in the UK, as well as global pressure to combat terrorism. Currently, the UK has several pieces of terrorism legislation in force, including the Terrorism Act of 2000, the Anti-Terrorism Crime and Security Act of 2001, the Prevention of Terrorism Act of 2005, the Terrorism Act of 2006, the Counter-Terrorism Act of 2008, and the Counter-Terrorism and Security Act of 2015. During the spring and summer of 2017, we witnessed a chain of terrorism-related attacks in the United Kingdom. While public attention had been largely focused towards terrorist-related incidents abroad, these events dramatically refocused the discussion to the UK and its own domestic counter-terrorism policies. Shortly before 10 past 10 yesterday evening, the Metropolitan Police received reports that a white van had struck pedestrians on London Bridge. It continued to drive from London Bridge to Borough Market, where three terrorists left the van and attacked innocent and unarmed civilians with blades and knives. This is, as we all know, the third terrorist attack Britain has experienced in the last three months. In March, a similar attack took place just around the corner on Westminster Bridge. Two weeks ago, the Manchester Arena was attacked by a suicide bomber, and now London has been struck once more. Our society should continue to function in accordance with our values. But when it comes to taking on extremism and terrorism, things need to change. The balance between terrorism prevention and individual rights has been hotly debated. Some advocate for a rigid criminal justice system combined with broad inspection and investigative powers to authorities, while others have major concerns regarding the potential invasion of privacy resulting from such meticulous surveillance. How can we balance the need to prevent possible acts of terrorism through intelligence gathering with the privacy rights of UK citizens and residents? Well, you can take um, two views uh, on this. You can take the view that um, the exercise by the state of surveillance powers is so dangerous that the state should simply not be given these powers, even though one must accept that the Russian government has them, the Chinese government has them, and in fact, Google has a lot of them as well, and the other social media companies. Or you can say, well, this is the modern world. You know, We are able to know a lot more about each other than was the case maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um, we have to work with that, and we have to make sure we have excellent safeguards in play to ensure that the state does not abuse the power that it has. Now, I fall into the second of those camps. 
I think the really interesting question from the civil liberties point of view is going to be whether European courts finally come down on these issues. I think you can see a distinction in the case law between the Strasbourg court, which has always been quite pragmatic about these things, cases like Weber and Sabo and Vissi last year, you had the Strasbourg court saying, well, these mass uh, techniques for collection of information in bulk are progress. They have to be very carefully safeguarded, but they're useful in pursuing crime. I agree with that. Court of Justice in Luxembourg, I think, has taken a more absolute view in cases like Schrems and Watson, where it has said you simply should not be able, as a government, to collect information about innocent people in bulk. Um, we'll see, I think, over the next year or two, uh, whether those courts succeed in coming together. And I very much hope that they do so um, on a basis that allows these very useful powers uh, to continue on a properly safeguarded basis. Because I'm afraid, uh, yes, people's privacy can be infringed um, and sometimes quite wrongly infringed when mistakes um, are made. Uh, but people's lives are also made miserable by crime and by the sense that there's nothing the state can do to protect them from crime. Both those things are really important. The rule of law as a legal maxim in the United Kingdom entails a strong presumption of innocence. No one should be punished or persecuted except for when they have been convicted of a distinct breach of the law. Some of the counterterrorism legislation relies on measures that effectively sidestep this principle, deploying punitive measures onto those accused before the criminal justice system becomes involved. For instance, the Terrorism Prevention and Investigation Measures Act of 2011 contains punitive measures applied to individuals before they are deemed to have committed a crime by subjecting one to curfews, restricted phone and internet usage, and even forcible relocation away from family and friends on only the suspected involvement in terrorist activities by the authorities. Moreover, in accordance with the 2015 Counterterrorism and Security Act, the state has been permitted broad powers over the citizenship and movement of people suspected of terrorist activities abroad. A temporary exclusion order can be obtained to temporarily disrupt a UK citizen suspected of involvement in terrorist activity abroad from returning to the United Kingdom, to strip citizenship from dual nationals, and to stop anyone under suspicion at ports and airports. Criticism over whether the current counterterrorism legislation is indeed undermining the principle of the rule of law is a frequent point of contention in the debate. I don't think that's true at all in the UK. Um, I was looking the other day at the cases brought against the UK in Strasbourg concerning uh, our anti-terrorism laws. And of the last nine cases that were communicated to the government, so they were taken seriously by the court, the UK won eight and a half of them. I'll say Abu Qatada maybe was a draw, because in the end he, we were able to deport him to Jordan, but only if certain additional conditions were satisfied. So that is a sign to me, yes, we have tough laws, but they are human rights compliant. And because we have tough laws, and perhaps also because we have been, relatively speaking, quite lucky, we have not had to resort, for example, to a state of emergency or to a derogation from the European Convention of Human Rights, um, which I think would be a less good option. Protection of human rights has been another major point of critique in the discussion around counterterrorism legislative developments in the UK, in Europe, and elsewhere. When a primary school spelling error of a 10-year-old child results in a police investigation of him and his family, 
we may begin to think critically about the extent to which such legislation permits state and security authorities to invade the personal sphere of individuals. With hindsight, it may be easy to classify the error as simple and attributable to age. But the fact that authorities are permitted a more extensive reach into the lives of individuals than ever before, irrespective of the immediate context or with only minimal evidence of terrorist activities, is quite clear. Within such a security and surveillance culture, embedded within counterterrorism legislation, where do we fit human rights into the equation? We have a very strong uh, human rights culture in this country. We have very strong NGOs. We have a lot of lawyers that take cases for free on behalf of terrorist suspects, for example. Um, and I think when we have had a big atrocity, it does concentrate people's minds a bit on the fact that uh, unfortunate as it may be, some of these laws are actually necessary. We, we've had experience in Northern Ireland in the 1970s and the 1980s where bad decisions were taken. Laws were too repressive. We introduced, for example, a system of detention without trial. Thousands of Catholics were subject to this detention. The following year, the number of terrorist deaths rose enormously. It was obviously counterproductive. And I think as a society, we have basically learned that lesson. You know, you do not crack this problem by being ever more um, unreasonable and harsh. That is what the terrorists want you to do, because they want to divide us against each other. You do it by respecting human rights, and you do it by tolerance. The other thing I'd say about human rights, they're not for wimps. Human rights are not uh, some kind of soft thing that make it more difficult for you to fight terrorism. Human rights are nearly all qualified, as you know, and their purpose is to preserve democracy, which is defined in terms of tolerance, pluralism, broad-mindedness. These are values which are absolutely inimical to any narrow religious conception of how society must be ordered. So human rights are on the side of freedom. They're on the side of if you're looking at Muslims, the feminist Muslim, the gay Muslim, the person who used to be a Muslim but doesn't want to be a Muslim anymore. Uh, and as a model for how to build a, a tolerant society, uh, human rights are not, are not val value neutral. Uh, that's why I like to say that far from impeding the uh, fight against terrorism, human rights actually explain why that fight is necessary. By virtue of their largely executive and discretionary nature, counterterrorism powers often take place virtually outside the criminal justice system, and thus severely test the limits of the rule of law. Due process protections that underpin the presumption of innocence, such as the right to a fair trial, have been greatly undermined within the counterterrorism framework. This represents the breaking of a central tenet of the relationship between a state and its citizens, with citizens viewed solely through the lens of security. As we see the threat changing, evolving, becoming more complex, we need to ensure that our police and our security and intelligence agencies have the powers they need. And what... Let me, let me just tell you a little bit about what I mean by that. I mean longer prison sentences for those convicted of terrorist offences. I mean making it easier for the authorities to deport foreign terrorist suspects back to their own country. 
and I mean doing more to restrict the freedom and movements of terrorist suspects, when we have enough evidence to know they are a threat, but not enough evidence to prosecute them in full in court. And if, if our human rights laws stop us from doing it, we'll change the laws so we can do it. The saying goes that if you have done nothing wrong, you have nothing to fear. We assume that a government who take executive and legislative actions is doing so in the pursuit of the common good and protection of its citizens. But it remains that terrorist suspects are still just that, suspects. As long as they have not been convicted of a crime, they remain suspects and as such should still enjoy a presumption of innocence free from strongly punitive sanctions. Such principles matter greatly to the effectiveness and fairness of the justice system as a whole. The criminal law in particular is built upon such fundamental principles that are in place to ensure that the law is applied fairly and impartially. Legal challenges that have been brought following the introduction of several counterterrorism legislative initiatives are illustrative of such due process and human rights issues. The 2014 Data Retention and Investigatory Powers Act forced telecommunications companies to maintain records on their customers' emails and phone call activity for a period of 12 months, and significantly broadened the state's investigative scope by allowing the government to compel phone and internet companies to store not just email and phone records, but also logs showing the websites customers visited and the apps they used. Law enforcement agencies are permitted to access this information without a court order or warrant for a broad range of reasons, not necessarily even related to suspected criminal activity. They can obtain the data, for instance, if they judge it to be for the purpose of protecting public health, or in the interests of the economic well-being of the United Kingdom, or even for the purpose of assessing or collecting any tax, duty, levy, or other imposition, contribution, or charge payable to a government department. A legal challenge brought against the Act by two UK Members of Parliament on the basis that it was incompatible with the UK Human Rights Act and the European Charter of Fundamental Rights was successful at both the UK High Court and the European Court of Justice, leading to its repeal and replacement with the 2016 Investigatory Powers Act. All of this fundamentally alters the relationship between the state and the citizen. It also affects the relationship between citizens themselves through an encouraged culture of suspicion and reporting. Think, if you see something, say something. Our teachers, doctors, neighbors, colleagues are all asked to be vigilant, to watch one another for signs of danger. And as discussed in our prior episode concerning the state of emergency laws in France, the nature of terrorism has been changing over recent times. The incidents are of a singular nature, seemingly isolated from one another. In such an environment, precisely defining terrorism and its accompanying legal parameters is crucial. How and what do we define as terrorism, and does our understanding of it still fit the current trend of attacks that we witness? We have a broad definition of terrorism. Most countries have. Ours is particularly broad, and I have recommended some small respects in which it should be um, reduced. But, you know, I rather wish that the word terrorism had never been invented, or, or if it had been invented, um, that it had stayed in the history books and not been introduced to the statute books. Because as soon as you say terrorism, um, you disorient people, um, whether you're police, whether you are uh, terrorists, whether you are journalists, whether you are academics, you're going to perceive yourself as involved in something uniquely frightening, terrible, even glamorous. 
and the more people read about terrorism and watch terrorism on the television and the more frightened they get, the better that is for the terrorists and the better it is for the filmmakers and the journalists and the academics and everybody else. And this is really a pernicious tendency. Um, terrorism is politically motivated violent crime. Uh, if we can manage not to be excessively intimidated by it, uh, then we should see it for what it is. It's like gang crime, it's like domestic violence, both of which incidentally kill far more people in this country than uh, terrorism, but which have none of the glamour that we quite wrongly uh, associate with terrorists and those who fight terrorists. So I wish we could all calm down a bit on this subject, although after six years reviewing the terrorism laws, I'm not hopeful that's going to happen anytime soon. A broad definition of terrorism applies to action taken to advance any political, religious, racial, or ideological cause designed to influence the government of any country or international organization, or to intimidate any member of the public anywhere in the world. Such an expansive definition may be dangerous, as it may ensnare actions, groups, or individuals that are not terrorist activities. For example, such a broad definition has been argued to extend to actions designed to seriously disrupt an electronic system, such as those performed by hackers. Whether such actions should fall in the same category as terrorism is highly debatable. Not to mention, many offenses become linked by such a broad definition, meaning that large numbers of activities are potentially criminalized, and thus may erroneously have the stigma and punitory aspects of criminal law imposed on them. Section 44 of the 2000 Terrorism Act, which has since been replaced, was heavily criticized for doing exactly this. Under Section 44, any police officer was permitted to stop and search anyone or any vehicle within a specified area. The search could be used for any item on the person, carried by the person, or in the vehicle, and there was no need for police officers to suspect that person of anything. These powers were so broadly drawn that security personnel were authorized to carry out stop and search on a rolling basis with no justification, and as a result, such powers were observed to be heavily used against peaceful protesters, accredited photographers and the press, tourists, and visible minorities. We're getting a lot of hassle from the police on the streets, uh, press photographers and amateurs and tourists at the moment. Um, this has been happening over, over a period of years with the terrorism legislation, specifically Section 44, and we're finding that we're being stopped and searched randomly on the street, and that's affecting our ability to work. Um, I myself was stopped um, last year covering a, a traveller wedding. I was stopped for 45 minutes. Um, told I could have been in hostile reconnaissance. Uh, you know, this is becoming a real problem. People are being stopped photographing sunsets over St Paul's, chip shops, roundabouts, and it's getting a bit crazy. And as you can see from the numbers that turned out today, people feel very strongly that this is a bad use of the law, you know, already. I think that uh, the way that the act is being used against photographers shows a lack of common sense. It actually erodes the very freedoms that the act is trying to preserve, which is why I'm here. So what we're calling for is a return to common sense and a restoring of trust between the police and the public. At the moment, that trust is being chipped away by the misuse of this sort of power. I just hope to raise people's awareness of the fact that our civil, li civil liberties are being eroded and chipped away at. And uh, I just want people to encourage other people to uh, ask the police to show common sense 
uh, and not to show the kind of distorted values that are currently being shown. This government has done extreme damage to our freedom of speech, our freedom of movement, and we, this is a, a, a protest to you know, put a marker in the ground and say that's enough. Following widespread criticism, as well as UK court rulings expressing concerns over giving such broad powers to authorities on the grounds that Section 44 unjustifiably ensnared legitimate activities, the government subsequently repealed and replaced the provision through the 2012 Protection of Freedoms Act. The act provides clear time limits and safeguards aiming to ensure such powers are used only in genuine emergencies, allowing only a senior police officer to authorize stop and search without suspicion in a specified area in which they reasonably suspect an act of terrorism is about to occur. France, a country all too familiar with the horror of terrorist attacks, responded by imposing temporary state of emergency laws in 2015, which were repeatedly extended until they remained in force years later. Following the election of Emmanuel Macron, the French Parliament has since adopted legislation that makes portions of the temporary state of emergency laws permanently in force. And we asked Mr. Anderson whether the UK is likely to follow a similar trajectory as France, or if there is anything to learn from the French example. I don't think anyone can be smug about counterterrorism. When I think of France, I always remember that they went from 1996 until 2012 without a single incident of jihadist terrorism on their soil. And that was a period when we had the terrible um, underground and bus bombings in London in um, 2005. It's true that they now have a, a state of emergency and that it has been um, frequently prolonged. If that is necessary in French conditions, then uh, then it is uh, unavoidable. Uh, all I would say from our perspective in the UK is that our whole tradition of policing is based not on policing by force, even now very few of our police officers carry, carry weapons, but on policing by consent, uh, as Robert Peel called it when he founded the Metropolitan Police in 1829. Nowadays we call it community policing, but the idea is that the police have the consent of the communities they serve to the laws that they have to apply. And the more extreme and unreasonable those laws become, the more difficult it is for them uh, to have that consent. And were we to find ourselves in the UK in a situation where police are perceived as, as hostile to the communities that they have to police, I think we would have um, much more severe problems than we have. Increased anti-terrorism measures are not singularly limited to France and the UK alone. It can be observed all over Europe and beyond, justified as part of a state's obligation to protect its citizens and to assist global efforts for safety and security. Similarly, incidents connected to an element of terrorism occur throughout the world, irrespective of geographical location or socioeconomic status of a country. The scattered geographical scope denotes an international, rather than a national, phenomenon that likely requires cooperation among nations and regions to effectively counter terrorist activities. So taking the EU as an example as a cooperative region, what are the essentials of collaboration we need? To attack the root of the problem requires some kind of reconciliation in the Middle East, and uh, I have no idea how that could be achieved or by whom, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to be achieved by any one country. When it comes to domestic laws, well, it's Europe's age-old problem. How much do we do on our own and how much do we do together? I think there are different cultural sensitivities in different countries. For example, in Germany, it's a crime to deny the Holocaust, and that's not a position which we've ever 
taken in English-speaking countries, perhaps because we don't have the same historical experience. I have no difficulty with the two countries having different laws on that subject. But when it comes to sharing information and having access to each other's databases and having police forces that can operate uh, easily with each other, prosecutors that can operate in joint teams, um, the mechanisms of the EU, after many years of, of not being very effective, are now finally starting to come together. Just at the moment, I might add, when the United Kingdom, in its wisdom, has decided to leave the EU, I very much hope um, that, if nothing else, we will succeed in remaining part of those mechanisms, which I think are beginning to do quite a bit to keep us all safer. National security and intelligence services seek to intercept and prevent future attacks through effective intelligence gathering, while law enforcement agencies prosecute suspected terrorists in order to prevent further terrorist activities and communicate a general message of deterrence. However, governments have a duty to ensure that they do not completely abandon our democratic values in the pursuit of counterterrorism. Beyond legislative developments, additional anti-terrorism measures have been taken in the UK that have a more perceptible effect on our day-to-day lives, including a higher prevalence of armed police in the streets and at major transportation centres, an increased use of CCTV cameras to surveil public spaces, and automatic facial and plate recognition technology. Arguably, through the terrorism legislation and other measures, the UK government may be abrogating its commitment to these values by giving broad discretionary powers to security authorities and encouraging society as a whole towards a culture of suspicion and reporting. The duty to prevent terrorism in the UK is now arguably extended to the point where it encompasses almost every facet of our lives, from nurseries to schools, hospitals, and even the posters on bus stops telling us all to be vigilant. In addition to discussion on the extent of surveillance, the financial resources required by the state as a result of expanded counterterrorism legislation have also been a major point of discussion. An additional £50 million has been budgeted for UK police authorities to fund counterterrorism-related schemes, namely to increase intelligence and surveillance capabilities and to pay for armed officers to patrol city centres and transportation hubs. Not surprisingly, the increased budget has been justified through public protection and security needs, and Amber Rudd, the current UK Home Secretary, has argued that the UK police forces have been at the forefront of any terrorist response, ultimately putting themselves in harm's way to keep others from danger. Ms. Rudd goes on to justify increased expenditure as a necessary show of support by the government, who has a responsibility to ensure that they have the resources, capabilities, and powers they require. The current level of threat, both in the UK and elsewhere, is unlikely to diminish anytime soon, and accordingly it becomes harder and harder to justify temporary or exceptional measures. While the UK has not introduced a state of emergency, similar issues arise surrounding the scope and type of surveillance powers justified as a necessary response to terrorism. Ultimately, behind any security and safety regime is the presumption of a well-operating legal system underpinning it. The proper functioning and guiding principles of the legal system serve to ensure that police activity is lawful, that any security measures are constitutionally bound, and that fundamental rights are protected throughout the process. In establishing and safeguarding this balance of interests in counterterrorism legislation, the role of the independent reviewer is certainly critical. And given that the threat from terrorism will continue to evolve and diversify, it is vital that robust oversight exists to ensure counterterrorism laws are fair, necessary, and proportionate.
Students Phone is a production of law students in Tilburg University's Global Law Program. This episode was produced by Selena Holstein and Kaisa Mittenen and narrated and edited by me, Benjamin Wiles. We would like to thank Mr. David Anderson, QC, for having such a frank conversation with us concerning his direct involvement with the UK's anti-terrorism scheme and his insight into the operation of such laws in today's globalized world. And thank you for listening. Be sure to check out our website at www.nomosphone.com or our SoundCloud page to get the latest on our episode releases and watch out for several other episodes coming very soon. And if you like what we do, please leave us a review on our iTunes page as it really helps us to get the word out to others about what we do here.